Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Bradley and welcome back into another episode of Let's Dive Deep. Today we are wrapping up our deep dive into the first season of the hit Netflix series Bridgerton. We are going to do an episode re-ranking, you know, at the beginning of each show. We took the episode, we watched it, and we gave it a ranking, but now that we know everything that happens, do our opinions change? Do we like something more? Do we like something less? How do our opinions shift around now that we've we've at least seen this first whole season of the story? So that's going to be really fun. We're also going to answer some questions and just generally chat about the season as a whole and what we liked and didn't like it and what was awesome and what maybe wasn't so great instead of breaking it down episode by episode. I can announce that we will be covering season two of Bridgerton, which is all about Anthony, my favorite character in anything ever. Um, so that might be a that might be a hurdle that I personally have to get over covering a season of a TV show about Anthony. But we are going to do it. I'm committed to it, uh, and that'll be right here in this feed. So if you enjoyed this podcast, if you enjoyed our coverage of season one, bigger and better things are are underway on the back end here for season two. So just make sure you stay subscribed to the feed, and if you you haven't yet click that subscribe button on your favorite podcatcher to this feed so you are ready and raring to go for when Bridgerton is back in our lives is a show we haven't yet seen and maybe you know what maybe maybe we might do a book read somewhere in there depending on how long it is between season one and two maybe I should crack open the Duke and I I love reading I love podcasting maybe that's a, a match made in heaven we'll see that being said though Episodes like this that are Q&A-like, we can do them in between seasons. So if you like this episode and just generally chatting about Bridgerton, feel free to email and tweet me questions anytime. And once we have a next, or, or enough questions kind of built up, we'll keep doing these episodes. There's no limit, right? There's no, I can sit down and talk about Bridgerton forever. So if you have any questions you want answered or you want me to chat about, feel free to email them to me or tweet me. And we can do as many of these episodes every couple weeks as we like until season two uh, comes into our lives. You guys know the drill by now, but Let's Dive Deep contains adult content. If you think we are making it through this whole episode without once again talking about the sex montage overlaid with the kind of orchestral Taylor Swift song, you are mistaken. So if you watch Bridgerton or listen to any of the other podcast episodes, you should be fine. But if you're not here for adult content, unfortunately, this might not be the podcast for you. And unlike the other episodes of the Bridgerton podcast we're doing here, all of those episodes were spoiler-free. We only talked about each episode as it was and everything that came before it, but I hadn't watched the show yet, so we didn't spoil anything ahead. So those ones were spoiler-free. This one does contain spoilers. We are talking about all eight episodes of Bridgerton today, so if you have not watched all of the show and you do not want to be spoiled, now is a great time to tune out of the podcast and kind of revisit once you're caught up. Keep in mind, though, that I have not read the book, so if you do not want to be book-spoiled, you are still good here because I have not read it, I have not been spoiled i do not know anything that happens in the book so i could not possibly ruin it for you you are safe to be here and finally before we get started today if you are enjoying the podcast make sure to go subscribe and leave those five star reviews wherever you are listening to this you guys have been amazing i didn't know <laughs> i didn't know that itunes reviews were kind of blocked by country so i'm in canada canadian so i'm looking at my canadian itunes feed and the reviews <laughs> the reviews there um were, were just a couple and then when you go to the american feed where all the people listen to this you guys have been leaving so many cool reviews so thank you guys so much i had no idea up until this point so keep on leaving those reviews this podcast is more popular than ever post Bridgerton than it was when we were doing the run so I appreciate all the support so keep subscribing keep
keep uh, keep putting those five-star reviews out there. It really helps bring more Bridgerton fans into the podcast. And lastly, as we mentioned during the Bridgerton run, this is not the only Let's Dive Deep series that there is. Let's Dive Deep Hamilton is now out. It is live. It is in your favorite podcatcher wherever you are listening to this. So if you are a fan of the hit Broadway musical Hamilton, whether you watch the Disney Plus version, whether you've seen it live, whether you've just listened to the soundtrack, me and my friend Connor do a more conversational, very deep dive. Each episode so far is well over two hours. So it's a very deep dive uh, between two people instead of just me going solo. It's more of a conversation, kind of like being at the water cooler at work talking about Hamilton. So if you are a Hamilton fan and you're enjoying this podcast and you think you might like that, you can check the show notes for that feed. Let's dive deep Hamilton. You can follow us on Twitter at let's dive deep to get all the links there as well. Just thank you so much for enjoying this. And if you enjoy Hamilton, uh, you can also search for let's dive deep Hamilton in your favorite podcatcher. Now that all of the housekeeping is out of the way, it is time to finally talk about Bridgerton. And before we do the episode rankings, let's talk about Bridgerton as a whole outside of this podcast. How did people feel about it? Well, on IMDb, it has a 7.3. So I don't know what IMDb scale, what they use. I think it's just a 1 to 10 scale. But for me, in, in terms of our on-show scale, each number is harder to get to than the last. 7 is our benchmark for a really good episode of television. So if you're hitting above a 7, you're doing really well. It's almost impossible for me to give you a 10 or even, even close to a 9 is pretty hard to get to. Most TV for me lives between 7 and 8.5. And that's the kind of rate. I'm going with so I don't know how common a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb is I don't know which shows are above it or below it I suppose I could have done that research ahead of time but 7.3 out of 10 tracks with our initial rating if you average out all the ratings of our Bridgerton run that we did and how I scored them my average score taking all the episodes, adding them all up, dividing by eight. My average score was 7.83. So I rated the show on average 0.5 higher as it was going on uh, than IMDb. So I I think 7.3 is a fair IMDb rating. I don't think that's hitting too low. I don't think that's hitting too high. I think that's right about where it would sit for a, a critical review and on Rotten Tomatoes y'all freaking loved it 89% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes absolutely incredible response with both audiences and critics thoroughly enjoying the show I think it's worth quickly kind of analyzing why that is and a lot of it goes back to my episode one commentary that I made Bridgerton is a show that is appealing for a variety of reasons Let's talk about the pandemic, though. Bridgerton is a happy show. It is a fun show. It is a lovey-dovey, romantic. You kind of know the plot. When you meet Lord Burbrook, you know she's not going to end up with him. You know she's going to end up with the Duke. You already know these things, but you watch it because Bridgerton is a show that's meant to... It, it, it wasn't made for the pandemic or anything like that, but it happened to come out during the pandemic, and that context is important because I was 800 times more likely to click on Bridgerton now than I would have been pre-pandemic. I was looking through Netflix. I didn't know what Bridgerton was. I had never heard anything about it. It just came up on my Netflix on Christmas like it did everyone else. It seemed fairly popular. I saw the period piece kind of 
uh, clothing, and I saw that it seemed like a, a kind of fun, a show that I didn't have to really pay attention to if I didn't want to. You could put it on the background, you can do your knitting, you can be on your phone, you could put it in the background while something else is happening and you're not really paying attention. And that's the first thing I think Bridgerton does really well. It's a feel-good show in a time where people aren't generally feeling as good. And these types of things are uplifting. It's the same with sports for me. During the pandemic, I've been much more emotionally invested in sports because they're uplifting kind of happy things for me to watch during a pandemic that is generally a negative experience. So I think Bridgerton was fortunate to come out in a time where people are inside, they're watching Netflix more than ever, and they're looking for something bright and colorful and fun and and exciting to, to brighten up their lives. And then after that, that, that's kind of the draw. So you've clicked on Bridgerton. Well, what do you get when you watch Bridgerton? For me, this is a show that succeeds in being something that you can just watch kind of passively in the background when you're not really paying attention and just have a brief idea what's going on because you can kind of skim through it and know she's going to end up with the Duke and know a lot of the plot lines just kind of inherently or subconsciously. It allows it to be a good experience for, for that type of viewer, the casual viewer who's maybe kind of just binge watching it in one go and not really having eyes focused to the screen with subtitles on the whole time. But this is a really deep show. I hope one of the things the podcast has illuminated for, for you guys is sometimes the things we love the most, sometimes analyzing them isn't very fun because it's nice to just think of them as just a, a fun, casual thing I watched over Christmas one year. But when you really start to analyze these types of shows, there's a lot to break down. And I, and I hope the podcast was successful in doing that. It's called Let's Dive Deep for a Reason. The idea with doing Bridgerton first, before Hamilton, before Harry Potter, before all these other kind of big series I love, was almost to prove a point to myself, but also to Bridgerton people. Um, I, I've heard a lot, not Bridgerton people, people who haven't watched Bridgerton, who, who might have watched it and then listened to this podcast. A lot of people that I talked to about Bridgerton since doing the podcast said, oh, I'm not interested. My wife watched it. It's just softcore porn. Or like, ah, oh, it's just another lovey-dovey romance, whatever, whatever. And it's just, it's more than that. It is more than that if you're willing to take the deep dive. You don't have to, and that's what make Bridger makes Bridgerton amazing. And I think that's why audiences and critics loved it, is that audiences who aren't into the critical aspects of it are just looking for a feel-good pandemic story where Daphne ends up with the prince, there's a few trials and, and tribulations along the way. Um, you get that with this show, and that's amazing, and those types of viewers are all satisfied. But critically, the critics gave it great ratings. I'm This podcast is somewhere in the middle between being critical and and just enjoying it for what it is and so i think the success of bridgerton comes from being able to do both from being able to be a casual listen and being able to to be a deep diveable show that has a lot of cool themes and characters and decisions to break down and some really deep we're talking about some really heavy topics like in episode two when we're talking about the relationship with the duke and his father that's a heavy subject that is a very heavy subject if you want it to be, if you want to sit in that and really start analyzing it. And so I love doing this podcast and I love that I could interact with the show that way, but it totally serves its other purpose as a more casual watch if that's what you want it to be. And I think the last big broad thing that made it so charming to audiences and critics, which is why they're both giving it good scores, I think the last thing to add to that is just the, the inherent charm of the show. 
the bright colors, the balls, the dancing, the love interest, the, the, I don't know what the word is here. I don't know what word I'm looking for here, but it's just a fun, vibrant, positive experience. And it doesn't take itself too seriously, which is very endearing. Bridgerton is the type of story we've all seen before. We've all read before. This probably isn't your first period piece. This probably isn't your first time interacting with a story where there's a duke and a princess and they end up together. Like, that's not... Bridgerton's not the first time you're interacting with any of those things, but it knows that. It doesn't take itself too seriously. It takes modern music and puts it in there. We've talked about it kind of just nodding its head and being like, yeah, we get you. You're a 2021 audience. This whole situation is ridiculous. This whole system of finding husbands is ridiculous or finding wives or whatever. We understand that. And we're just trying to portray that in a, in a funny way and in a fun, vibrant, positive way. And they absolutely nailed it, except for episode six, where we've already talked about where they didn't nail it for that. But that really adds to the experience. So I think between between all of the things we just talked about, you have a fun, vibrant, casual show. You have a, a, a deep-ish, like a, a show you can do a deep dive on and really explore it in that way. And then for both of those types of viewing experiences, Bridgerton doesn't take itself too seriously. It's endearing. It brings you in. You want to live in that world for eight hours. Overall, just a really, really well put together show. And so I'm not surprised that audiences and critics both gave it high marks. Now it's time for the episode re-ranking before we get into the Q&A and talk about some of the, the actual in-show detailed stuff. The purpose of doing an episode re-ranking is the same reason you would go back and read your favorite book again, the same reason we all revisit our favorite stories from time to time. Things change with perspective. When we originally went through each episode, we gave it a ranking based on that episode and based on what we knew of the ones before it, but we didn't get a chance to give the episodes a ranking now that we know how they fit into the whole story. There's a few episodes for me that have the same ranking, a few that got a little bit better, a few that got a little bit worse for me, but having that context and going back and revisiting is an awesome kind of just mental thing to do to kind of decompress at the end of a season of TV that you really liked, especially if you're podcasting about it and giving those rankings. It's also a way for me to kind of take a look. This is the first podcast I've ever done with a ranking system. Take a look at the ranking system. Do I think the system that we used to rate this television show as we went along, do I think it was effective? Do I think it worked well? And let's just chat about it. It's also worth noting we're not doing a deep dive on each episode. If you want the deep dive on each episode, you have to go back and listen to the podcast. This one's not going to be two hours long. This is just a really quick original score, new score, why the change. And then if you want my original opinions on everything, most of them are unchanged. And you can go back and watch or listen to those episodes, sorry. And I'm assuming you've already listened to them if you're here. And so this is just a really quick exercise. It's not a re-deep dive of each episode. Let's start with episode one, Diamond of the First Water. My original ranking for this episode was 7.3, and my new ranking is 7.5. 
I'm somebody who doesn't really like exposition, or not that I don't really like exposition. Every story needs exposition. I'm just somebody who doesn't like when it's obvious that you're only doing something for exposition. So I am always more likely to dislike early episodes of TV shows. It's just something about me personally that I know about myself. The beginnings of movies are always my least favorite. I find them kind of boring and redundant a lot of the time. Same with the beginnings of books, right? There's a book I'm reading right now called Flowers in the Attic and now that we're in the attic right everything that came before it now that i think about it i'm like what do we need all that like that exposition was really really like janky in parts and so i'm just someone who's predisposed to noticing those things just based on what i like in, in television and re-watching also good to know i rewatched all of bridgerton kind of on and off not consistently and not right before i watched or, or recorded this podcast but since finishing episode eight and recording that i have re-watched it to, to kind of color my rankings a little bit here I, I think the episode did a better job than i gave it credit for and i gave it a lot of credit 7.3 is a great rating but I think it does a better job than I gave it credit for of introducing us to all the characters and the storylines in a fun, playful, interesting way that's not too boring or repetitive or obviously only there for exposition. I, I think it er thoroughly earns the extra point too. Now that I know where all the storylines go and where all the characters end up, I can go back to episode one and say, wow, they did a better job than I gave them credit for in setting this all up. Because at the beginning, you just don't know where this is going. So original ranking 7.3, new ranking 7.5. Uh, a much better episode in my point of view. Now that I've seen the whole show, when I went for a rewatch, I liked it more than I did the first time. Episode 2, Shock and Delight. Original ranking 7.6. New ranking? Still 7.6. I still think it's better than the or than the premiere episode than episode one diamond of the first water although now i think it's just a hair a slight hair better i think episode one was much better the second time um or at least the third time when i watched it after knowing everything i watched each episode twice to record the podcast but without watching ahead uh, going back after i'd watched episode eight to episode two I think it deserves the same ranking. Burbrook still sucks for me. I just don't like Burbrook. We're going to talk about that later. Box position is still a little bit weird, but overall a lovely episode. Liked it better than the premiere, although just slightly. I think it does a good job of moving the plot along, keeping the Duke and Daphne interesting. It adds a little bit of tension, a little bit of spice to life. It keeps the Bridgerton world alive. I also really love the backstory with Simon. Everything we get uh, there is still really good for me. So I stand by my 7.6 rating. Watching this back again after watching the finale, I didn't think it was a better. I certainly didn't think it was worse, though. 7.6 sits perfectly with me. Episode 3, Art of the Swoon, original rating 7.7, .7, new rating 7.8, a better episode the, the, the next time I watched it through after watching the finale. There are a few tender moments in here that I'm not sure I gave enough credit to the first time. Anthony in the, in the kitchen with the milk giving giving Daphne the download on Simon. I really like that. The prince is here. Cressida sucks. There's Anthony and Sienna tension. This episode does a lot to build the story going forward and gives me a lot of kind of tender moments that I might not have given enough credit to the first time. I also think this is the episode 
where we get the whole like the whole the duke telling daphne to touch herself thing which i think is hilarious and funny and just it kind of starts that it starts my brain going on the why didn't daphne's mom tell her this which ends up being a, a big through line of the show for me so i think episode three I didn't give it enough credit for, for being as good of an episode as it was while continuing the storylines we already had while also kind of starting the new storylines we're going to need from here on out till the end of the show. So a better episode, 7.7 .7 to 7.8. Episode 4, An Affair of Honor, original rating 7.9. New rating, first one that backs up a little bit, 7.8. I, I didn't like it as much when I rewatched it after the whole series. I don't think it's a bad episode. 7.8 is still amazing. We have to always keep in mind that 7 is the bar. It's hard to get to 8. 8s aren't for every episode of television. So I think 7.8 is a perfectly fair rating for this episode now that I'm going back to kind of re-rank it. I love Cheese and Sneeze still. That's, that's very fun. I like the whole idea of the Affair of Honor. I still like Anthony sticking up for his sister, even though I think the whole kind of situation is dumb. The problems I had with it, though, are kind of exasperated more now that I've watched it back after watching the whole thing. Because the whole idea of the, the makeout session, the garden loophole, that was still weird to me. It was even weirder the next time I watched it. I just don't know. There's just the, the little tweaks and things. You'll have to go back to listen to episode four. I didn't re-listen to my own podcast to figure out exactly what I had said the first time. But there's just something about that whole system of you made out with someone in a garden that then you have to marry them that I'm not quite getting. Not that I'm saying it's inaccurate for the time, but I'm analyzing it within the show here. I just think it sits more oddly knowing where Daphne and Simon go from here and where they end up. It sits weirder to me that this is kind of their first interaction. This is how they end up getting married. I think it makes sense for the story that it happens this way. I just think the execution left me feeling a little weirder, the or a little more kind of janky maybe the second time through. So it's not a big deal. This episode wasn't like amazing to trash. It was really good to still really good. I just think it was a little bit harder to to understand when you rewatch it through after you've watched the, the whole series. So original rating 7.9. The new rating is 7.8. Episode five, The Duke and I, original rating 7.9. New rating 8.1. Much like the first episode, I liked this much more watching it again after the, after watching, I keep saying that, but I like this much more after watching the whole series. This, the tension in this episode between Simon and Daphne is so good. Knowing where they end up, this tension just hits that much better. I really loved it. The chat with Rose about children really sticks out to me uh, another time. I really love that. It's a, it's another tender moment that I know I gave credit to the first time, but I really liked it when I'm re-watching it now. So that was really incredible. The 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 wedding going in and just that, that moment. I, I believe this is the I Burn For You episode. Uh, I, I should, should have written which episode that was in, our, in my notes. I think this is the I Burn For You episode where they're at the inn. They just got married. And all of that just really, it, it was really good the first time. 7.9 was our original rating. It's even better the second time through after you've watched the whole series. So 7.9 to 8.1. Episode 6, Swish, original rating 8.1. New rating, it's still an 8.1 for me. 
I said about this episode when I watched it or when I recorded the podcast the first time that my favorite thing about it was that all of our characters were in the gray. They were all making choices, making decisions where they are in the moral gray area and we have to interpret and work out how to feel about it. And I really love when a show puts me in those positions as a viewer. And I, I loved this episode just as much the first time uh, as I do the second and third time that I've watched it. I still understand why people don't like it. I do not agree, but that's totally fine. Swish is still a really great episode of television for me. I'm keeping it at an 8.1 where I originally rated it. Episode 7, Oceans Apart, original rating 8.2, new rating 8.1. The only reason I'm taking the point off of this episode is once you see how quickly the Duke and Daphne kind of figure their shit out and get back together, the whole point where they're apart kind of seems more pointless. It's still a great episode, that opening sequence with the piano and the gunshot and all of that stuff, still incredible. I, it just doesn't sit as good for me now, knowing how quickly in the next episode they're going to patch things up, that the show does this whole episode. I, I don't know how to feel about it, because on one hand, you need this whole episode where they're apart. I just think in this eight-episode season, the, the period where they're up against each other after what happens at the end of episode six isn't long enough, and it just feels condensed and short. Now knowing how, how the Duke and Daphne end up at the end of the finale, having a child and it's all good and everything's fantastic, and he's even using the naming convention and all that, the whole point where they're apart just doesn't hit as well as it did the first time when you don't know what's going to happen. So 8.2 down to 8.1. 8.1, it's still hard to get an 8.1. It's still a fantastic episode of television. I just think it's not better than Swish anymore. I think it's equally as good as Swish instead. And then finally, the finale after the rain. I really struggled to take points off the finale because I already rated the finale. It was the only episode in our original run that didn't get equal or better than the ones before it, but I got to take another point off. The, the, the speed by which, or the speed of which Daphne and the Duke patch things up is just too quick for me. And because when you watch it the first time, you're still interested in the other things. Who's Lady Whistledown? What's going to happen with Marina? Yada, yada, yada. All of the side issues, right? Because you still don't know how they're going to get resolved, you have a lot to, to, to work around. And so you're a little distracted from it. But the second time through, after you know what's going to happen to all the other side plots, you're really focused in on the Duke and Daphne. And it's just too quick. I'm going to go from an 8 down to a 7.9. I don't think it's a bad episode of television. 7.9 is still a really good score. I don't think I don't think it's the best finale. The finale has the highest potential to be the highest rated episode, and so I have to hold it to that bar. And I think I was a little too lenient on some of the issues I have with the speed and condensation of the storyline of the Duke and Daphne. With that being said, though, this is going to come as a surprise to absolutely nobody. I really fucking loved Bridgerton. My overall average rating originally was 7.83. Adding up all the first rankings, dividing them by 8, what do we get? 7.83. That is higher than the IMDb rating at 7.3. So I loved it, at least based on my own scale, more than the average person did when they watched it the first time, and my average with the second rankings, after kind of adjusting, giving some episodes a higher ranking, some episodes a lower ranking, some are staying the same as 7.87, so a very small 
minor increase, but an increase nonetheless, and that increase is important. It's small, but 7.83 to 7.87 means that when you go back and you revisit Bridgerton, it is better than the first time you watched it, at least for me. And that's really hard to do because when you're watching something the second time, the things that are in your favor are that you love these characters, you love the story. So you get a chance to go back and pick up things you didn't pick up the first time. You get a chance to to go in and just revisit this world you already know you enjoy spending time in. But you have none of the suspense. You know what happens to all these characters. So the show, the first time you might miss things. You might just be excited by what's happening. You know you have a really well-constructed, well-written, well-directed, well-lit, well-cast show. When you go back and revisit it, knowing what's going to happen. And it's better than the first time you watched it. So while well, 7.83 to 7.87, I don't think seems like a lot it's a very small number it it's incredibly hard to for something to be better when you revisit it and i think that says something about how well constructed this show is that i feel better about it the second time than i did the first time all right that was liberating that was freeing i feel like my opinions have left my body i love revisiting stories and going back and taking like the context of what happens into account when you re-rank things. That's one of my favorite things to do with, with some of my favorite stories. So I hope you enjoyed that re-ranking, that retooling of our episode scores. And I hope you understand the purpose of it and why I think it's important to go back and do that. If you agree or disagree with any of my rankings, maybe like, you're stupid Canadian. This is all wrong. You suck. This was terrible. Send me an email. I'd love to hear what you have for your episode rankings which episodes you thought were better or you thought were worse or which things stuck out to you the second time you watched through bridgerton you can always tweet me at let's dive deep you can head in to let's dive deep pod at gmail.com and send us some emails that would be super fun and like i said if you tweet and send more emails we'll do more episodes like this but let's head to the question and answer section and kind of talk about the nitty-gritty of bridgerton so I pulled these questions from Twitter, from our Gmail, the two places I just told you to go and hang out. So some of them are pulled directly from there. Some of them are pulled for online sources, questions like websites were posing to people as they were kind of advertising their coverage of the show. And some of them are just questions that I wanted to answer. So it's a kind of a conglomerate of a few different uh, spaces where we got questions from. But most of them are questions that you ask directly, either through email or through Twitter. Question number one, do I think Netflix should have given Bridgerton more than eight episodes or was it just right? It was not just right. It was even less right the second time as I talked about with my finale score change. This needed nine episodes, maybe 10. If you gave it 10 episodes, I don't know where that second episode of the two extra goes exactly. Maybe just flushing out some of our slide side plots. I don't think any of the other side stories were underserved by the amount of time they were given. I think Marina's was poorly written, but I don't think it was given too little time. But you need an episode eight that just continues the coverage. Or you know what? Not even an episode eight that continues the coverage of the post episode six stuff. What you need is you need episode six to happen. Daphne does what she does. Her and the Duke are at odds. Then you get to episode seven, Oceans Apart. I need that nine months between when they're okay, right? Or what do I need here? I need either the Duke. I need more of the Duke before he makes the decision 
to have children because that's something that gets that gets gone or, or that gets kind of rolled over way too quickly this is the antithesis of what he wants to do he made an oath on his father's deathbed which i think i think is whatever right but he takes it really seriously so i need a little bit more time maybe half an episode of this ninth episode that kind of gives us the more of the duke making that decision more of simon really kind of sitting with being okay with having kids and talking that through with Daphne. And then I need another half an episode that covers the nine months where, well, Daphne's pregnant. Cause you know, somewhere in that nine months, Simon is kind of second guessing himself. He's kind of talk, trying to talk this through with Daphne. He's trying to be a supportive husband, but he's also unsure if he made the right choice. You know, that was nine months of stuff that would have been great to watch on TV and stuff that was important for his character because by the end simon gets to where he gets to far too quickly so i think a 10 episode run would have been perfect but even just a ninth episode where half of it is split into the duke and daphne working up the choice to have kids and then half the the nine month pregnancy period where they're kind of working that through as a couple i think those are very important for his character and we just didn't get them and that that just sucks so i think even one extra episode i know exactly what to do with it a second extra episode i'm not exactly sure but i'm sure it would have been amazing i think episode i think i think eight episodes was too few i don't think i'd go more than 10 but certainly a ninth episode would have been very helpful and probably a tenth as well who is my favorite character and storyline? So I don't have time right now. Maybe another podcast we can do a character ranking. We can really go and dive deep through all the characters, through all the all the all the arcs we went on. It's not going to surprise everyone and I have no problem like not picking the the underdog here. I think the story is really Simon's story. And so he's my favorite character. He's the character and his arc is the is the arc that really turns this from that casual show watchery show show watchery show what the fuck does that mean like a a show that you can watch while knitting or doing something else or whatever right you know he's going to end up with Daphne so it doesn't matter you can you can watch it in the background but Simon's story adds the depth the complexity and then his story and how it interacts with Daphne's story adds that complexity to Daphne because Daphne doesn't really change a lot right she starts out wanting a duke wanting a prince wanting to marry for love and all of that and she gets what she wants so she doesn't really change as a person that doesn't mean her her story is not compelling it's not interesting it's an incredible story but it Simon's is where it goes from a show that you can watch casually in the background to a show where you can dive deep and do this podcast so naturally I really like his story I love the idea of Simon who's an only child with an abusive father who never met his mother and how do you overcome that as a person what does that do to you as a person now you've inherited this land this title he doesn't he doesn't even do the job <laughs> like he we learn in this show if there's one thing we learned in Bridgerton that Simon does not do his actual job of being the duke right so what does that do to you as a person how do you overcome that he doesn't have a way to overcome that he doesn't intend to but meeting Daphne changes something but it's not easy it doesn't just he's he met Daphne now he wants to get married and have kids and happily ever after there's a real story a deep complicated kind of upsetting story in there that we got to explore with him that we got to talk about on this podcast so I have no problem picking the obvious choice uh, the fact that he is the obvious choice means they did exactly what they needed to do with his character with this story 
I really loved the Duke as a character. Simon Bassett was just an incredible, uh, incredible portrayal from the book to the screen. And I'm not sure what his book storyline is at all. But just to to read to read the book, the Duke and I, and to to decide to adapt it into a show, I'm sure they spent a lot of time going over what they wanted to achieve with with Simon's character. And while the end of it was a little too quick, I think the rest of the journey was was right where we needed it to be. So he's easily my favorite character, and that was my favorite storyline. One of the parts of Bridgerton that's so charming, though, while we're talking about favorite characters, is that there's a lot of characters that are never going to be your favorites, but are kind of like the Luna Lovegood character, right? Like, no one read Harry Potter and goes, man, Luna Lovegood sucks. She's universally beloved, is that that quirky kind of side character. It's not doing her justice, Harry Potter heads. Do not email me. I understand. I totally get you. I, I, I am a nerd about Harry Potter more than anything else. I promise I'm not trying to, 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 to not give Luna the credit she deserves here. But... Characters like Eloise, characters like Cheese and Sneeze. These are characters that come in, they're funny, they're compelling, they're there. They're not the main story, but they don't detract from it. They add to it. So there's a whole swath of side characters that are just funny and charming. They're never going to be our favorites, but I just want to give the honorable mentions to all of the side characters in Bridgerton, because other than Lord Burbrook, who is the only character I really don't think fit in the story... Every other side character really nailed it for me, and I think that's a very charming, fun part of Bridgerton. So I just want to give a shout out to all of all of the side characters who did some incredible work. Uh, Philippa, like all the Featherington daughters, are hilarious. Even Lord Featherington, you know, small storyline for him, but just the way he sits sits on the couch with the newspaper. All of these kind of smaller secondary and tertiary characters were really well done. So I just want to give them all a shout out here, even though I'm picking uh, the Duke as my favorite character and the best of the main cast. All of the secondary and tertiary characters, very well done. Next question, is there a story that could have been slimmed or not included at all? The one that comes to mind first is Marina's. Now, I don't think there's a story that I just want to take out of the show. I think, Marie, you know what? It's not Marina's. Marina's needed better writing. Marina's story fell flat for me because she was the only character that was really inconsistently written in a way that felt bad. I think I think Anthony's writing was fairly inconsistent, but in a way that at least made sense with his character. But Marina has some really good episodes, and then she has some awful episodes, and it it's not the actress. It's definitely something to do with the writing or the directing or the way they broke her story or something, because I just don't vibe with Marina's story the same way, but I think it needs to be in there. If I could pick something to be slimmed or not included, it's got to be Lord Burbrook for me. Get that guy out of here. Have the Duke come in in episode one. Add some stakes to the story. The Duke has met Daphne. They're going to be a thing, but now there's a fucking prince involved. I talked all about it in episode one, two, and three, so I don't want to keep harping on about it, but I think that's the one storyline that I just wouldn't have included it. I just would have taken Lord Burbrook out, put the prince in in episode one, add those stakes to the story then, and then find a different way to uh, give Anthony the, the chance to mess things up because Burbrook is really there to give Anthony the chance to be an asshole and mess things up. So when the, when the Duke comes along, you already have the backstory on Anthony's character and he's already messed it up with Burbrook and you already understand who Anthony is. So Lord Burbrook is there to, to give us more intel on Anthony's character. You can do that in a different way. I'm not sure how, but I just think Lord Burbrook fell flat for me. So I, I don't think if I could adapt this from the TV show to another TV show, I think I'd ax his character and add in the prince earlier.
Next up, do I think Anthony's story can carry through season two, or do I think we will need more of Simon and Daphne? So here's the problem with answering this question. If I'm going with show Anthony, absolutely not. The only chance, the only chance, I, you know, I'll reframe that. I don't think Anthony's story from TV show Anthony, from just what we got in the TV series, I don't think that story can continue and be as successful. Bridgerton is the most popular Netflix show of all time. So I don't think Anthony's story can be the main focus of season two and be as successful. I think it can be good. I think it can be well done. I'm not sure if as many people will be that into it, or at least as many people will be as into it as were as they were for this original story with Simon and Daphne. I don't know what happens to Anthony in the book. So maybe book two is better than book one. Like that, that would be the best. If people generally enjoy book two more than book one, which I have no idea, maybe his storyline in book two, the one they're going to adapt will be better and they will do a great job. So I don't want to, I don't want to put the cart before the horse or lose the forest for the trees just because I didn't vibe with Anthony that much, or I don't think his character from the show in season one can sustain a popular storyline in season two, doesn't mean that they can't figure that out, right? Because I don't know what happens to Anthony. If they get Sienna involved, if they give us enough Simon and Daphne to keep the people who loved season one like us kind of kind of satisfied that their characters are still continuing then i think they can make anthony's storyline good enough for what they're trying to do i think it's complicated i think they do need to add whatever level simon and daphne are in the books i think they need to probably add on top of that i wouldn't be surprised if we get more simon and daphne in season two of the show than there is in book number two but I think they can make Anthony's story kind of stand on its own. I'm just not sure if it'll be as popular. If they put Sienna in it, though, look, if Anthony and Sienna are in there, then, hey, anything could happen because I fucking love Sienna. I don't know why. I don't know what it is about her character, but I am just into Sienna. I think she's a great character. She had the just an amazing little story arc. I, I just love Sienna. So if Sienna's involved in that storyline, then I think there's something there that can that can start churning. I have no idea. So I'll re I'll recap. Can Anthony can show Anthony on his own sustain a storyline? I don't think they can do that and keep Bridgerton as popular as it is. Now, that's without knowing what his storyline actually is. So maybe his storyline is just fucking amazing and I'm going to be in for the ride of my life. That would be awesome. I do think they are going to need to keep Simon and Daphne on screen constants. Maybe they don't have a big storyline. Maybe they're just bringing the kids around for lunch. I have no idea. I think we need to at least see Simon and Daphne often. So the people who admire and love their story arc are still kind of invested into it. Um, so I think it might work out. They're going to have to do some work on Anthony's character, but I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that it'll be bad or that we won't like it as much. Second to last question, what do you think of who Lady Whistledown ended up being and how do you feel that her character is going to work going forward? Glad you asked because Lady Whistledown is one of the most obviously compelling parts of the show. The idea that this whole society can be handicapped by the gossip sheets of one woman no one knows is incredible. I think it adds some really some high stakes to the story in a really funny, unique way. So I like the idea of Lady Whistledown. 
In terms of Lady Whistledown being Penelope, as a point of fact, I really like it. I think it fits with Penelope that she is Lady Whistledown, and I think it tracks throughout the show. There are so many fun moments when, when Penelope's hurriedly trying to figure out how somebody gets pregnant. Now you know that you know she's Lady Whistledown, that Eloise is doing it out of sheer curiosity, but she's doing it because she needs to have the facts straight for when she publishes the next set of papers. So... I think the the problem I have with Lady Whistledown in the show, how it how it was kind of built up to the reveal, is that first off they choose they choose Julie Andrews to be the narrator, and I think that's the correct choice. I don't I don't have a problem with this at all. I think Julie Andrews does a really really great job as the narrator, but it's a little bit jarring. Not incorrect. Not that this isn't the right way to do it or that there's a better way to do it, but it is just a little bit jarring to have such a, a mature kind of educated style of voice be the narrator for Lady Whistledown and then have it be Penelope who's young, who we learn doesn't doesn't know how, how someone becomes pregnant, who, who's clearly not as well versed in the world as you assume Lady Whistledown to be. And that's just because you hear her voice. Everything with Whistledown tracks, the things she knows, the things she says, all of that tracks with the intelligence level and the, and, the, and the reasonable knowledge that Penelope would have of these events. So that all tracks, but it's just the voice to the character is a little bit of a hurdle to jump. So I encourage people who didn't like the Lady Whistledown reveal the first time, in terms of that it was Penelope, just watch the show again next time it suits your fancy. It feels a lot better that Penelope is Lady Whistledown the second time than it does the first time. That being said, though, I still think the show kind of eats it a little bit with building up to the the lady whistledown reveal because it's it's either obvious to me when i watched it half of each episode was like me just being like oh penelope's definitely lady whistledown or we've just wasted our time so the problem the show had with her is that they either made it at least to me way too obvious that she was lady whistledown so that kind of sucked because if it's too obvious it's not fun to guess anymore or it wasn't going to be her, her, and then it was just a waste of time. And so there's a, there's a few different problems there that I think still stick around when I watched it the second time. But overall, I really love that it's Penelope. I can, I can clearly get it. I didn't mention it. It didn't affect my ratings of the episodes. I, I felt good about it the second time. I felt good about it the first time. If you watch it again, things kind of click into place a little bit better and you, you start to you start to understand that the voice is not the person, right? <laughs> and so uh, that's a hurdle that, that some people I think have to get over. I do think though, like I think red herrings are fine. Obviously leading people in a different direction and then kind of switching things on them is a compelling part of TV. It's something a lot of TV shows do. I just think they spent too much time either saying Lady Whistledown's name and then hovering to Penelope or... Penelope gets the information about Marina and then it's published the next day and you're like oh well Penelope hates that Marina's with Colin of course she's the one publishing the the shit that could get Marina in trouble so it's just a bit too obvious for me and if it wasn't her I think it would have been too much time kind of leading us in the wrong direction so overall loved Lady Whistledown and the reveal uh, just takes another watch to have it really sink in but I liked it now how do I feel her character is going to go moving forward man this has the potential to be one of the most fun parts of the show because now as an audience, we know who she is and that's so exciting. When you're in the position, when you know who she is, now in season two, we get to watch her. I don't know how much she's in season two. Like I said, I haven't read the book. So maybe, I hope, if she's not a big part of season two, what a fucking waste of time we just had on Lady Whistledown. But 
if she's in season two in a prominent way again, how fun is it as an audience member to now know who is Lady Whistledown, right? So you can see her try and navigate and figure it out. And as the characters are trying to figure it out, you're going to be like, oh, you idiot. Oh, oh, you're so close. You're so close. So I think they have the opportunity here to really kind of play with the audience and the other characters in the show with regards to Lady Whistledown. Because now instead of kind of going along with the characters and trying to figure out who it is, now we know who it is, but the characters don't. And well... Well, every opportunity is a position to succeed or a position to fail. They could really mess that up. I think the upside of that is so much higher than the downside that I'm really looking forward to her character going forward. So first off, if you're not familiar with Quidditch, it is the sport played in the book and show universe or the book and movie universe of Harry Potter. So if you have not read or watched Harry Potter, you probably have no clue what we're talking about, but it is a... Quidditch is a sport played in the Harry Potter universe that has a variety of positions, and I'm going to cast the Bridgerton characters into those positions. Who are my who are my star players for my World Cup Quidditch team? I'm really excited. This is the last question we're going to go over, and I cannot stress this enough. Keep asking your questions. No matter when you come across this podcast, whether you're watching it the day it comes out or 100 years from now, Email those questions, tweet those questions. We will do more Q&A episodes. If your question wasn't here or something you were hoping would get talked about didn't get talked about, don't worry. We're going to do more of these. So you can just send your questions along and we will get to them. But who is my Bridgerton Quidditch team? Let's start with the keeper. Let's start with the keeper. Who do I need as my keeper? I need somebody on the back of the pitch who's sitting in the goal up. They're on their brooms. They're hovering around the goalposts. I need someone who's going to do a good enough job stopping the other team from scoring. That's what I need. But I also need someone who has the vision of the whole field and someone who's bold enough and not encumbered and not, um, what's the word? I don't know. Who's not shy. Someone who can yell at the team, right? Maybe use a spell to, to enhance their voice. I don't know if that's allowed in Quidditch. Probably not. But someone who's loud, who's proud, who's going to be okay yelling instructions to the team and who's not going to put up with any shit. I'm going to go with Lady Featherington. It's a bold pick. I was surprised when I went over the characters that I picked Lady Featherington as the keeper. Will seemed like the obvious choice. I'm moving Will to a different position. Will's fast. Will's kind of big. He can sit in front of the the goal and stop people from scoring. He's athletic. I think that sits well in another position. I think Lady Featherington isn't going to be the best keeper, but is going to be someone on the pitch who can sit back, has a view of the whole thing, and who's not going to be too shy about yelling instructions and just keeping people focused on the game. You know she's competitive. You know she's going to want to win. It might be a little bit of a coach killer, a little bit of a locker room cancer. I'm not sure how our other characters are going to interact with her, but I think overall she fits She fits a lot of what I need in a keeper, although she's not perfect. Next up, the beaters. Each Quidditch team has two beaters. Who are the two people going around with their clubs and hitting the bludgers into the enemy team? This is where Will fits in perfectly. Hear me out here. Will, athletic. Big, tough, used to punching people in the face, used to getting punched in the fucking face. This guy should be dead. This guy should be dead or at least severely concussed and brain damaged. He is a warrior. He is tough. He's going to have no problem flying around with a club, hitting the bludger into the enemy team. Who do we give to Will to perfectly synergize our beater kind of system? We give him Anthony. Now, Anthony, not the most athletic 
a little bit scrawny. I don't know if he's the best person for the job, but we've seen his anger and his passion. When he catches the Duke making out with his sister, by God, he goes for it. We've seen him hop into the ring with Simon at some point in this show. We know he can be competitive. We know he can be proud, right? Give him somebody. Give him somebody that he knows, that he can be comfortable with. But more importantly, Will's not going to put up with any shit, right? We ought to pair Anthony with someone who's not going to fuck around. Because Anthony will fuck around unless he's heavily supervised. And I think being in Will's position, Will's not going to put up with that, right? You either do your job as the beater, which I think Anthony has the passion to do also i don't think anthony the most skilled person right the chasers and the seeker obviously need to be skilled people i don't know if anthony's the most skilled at anything i think using him as a blunt force instrument makes a lot of sense and pairing him with will just creates a synergy there where i think he'll shine because if he isn't hitting the ball if he isn't hitting the bludger at the enemy team sufficiently then i think will's gonna hit him with it so i think that's perfect for anthony to, to keep him motivated and to give him something to do Next up, my chasers, my speedsters. You're on the broom. You're out there. You're trying to dodge the bludgers. You need to be a little agile. You need to be a little athletic. Your job is to get the quaffle and put it through the hoops at the other end of the pitch to score points. You're about speed. You're about agility. You're about scoring goals. You're about dodging the bludger that the other team's beaters are hitting at you. First off, Prince Friedrich. For no other, for, actually not for no other reason. First reason, the actor who plays Prince Friedrich played, he played Keeper. He played Keeper in the Harry Potter universe, but he was in the Harry Potter universe and we know he fucking loves Quidditch. So at least the actor who plays Prince Friedrich, we, all, we already know he, he likes Quidditch. I get the sense that Prince Friedrich was brought in a house or was brought up in a household that appreciates the sport. And healthy competition. We see that he enjoys healthy competition, right? He wants to be with Daphne, but he backs off once once the Duke, uh, once the Duke kind of swoops in and, and gets that proposal. So I think Prince Friedrich would have grown up in a society in a. He's rich. He has a whole palace. If he grew up in the wizarding uh, wizarding world, you know he's got the best broom. Right? You know he practiced flying as a child. You know he's up for the task. He's got to be on the team. I think he functions best as a chaser, although I can't speak to his speed or agility. He strikes me as someone who's at least moderately athletic. Next up, Colin. Sly little devil. Definitely competitive. Definitely snarky. You know Colin's going to trash talk. Maybe not at first. Maybe you need to get through the exhibition games before Colin really starts coming alive. But I think Colin is a chaser. He's going to want to impress. Anthony is on this team, right? If he scores lots of points, brings glory to the Bridgerton Quidditch team, Anthony ain't going to fuck with him no more. You can go off and marry Marina at whatever Scottish place they were going to go to, right? Being, bringing Anthony glory helps his own cause, much like Daphne finding a suitable match helps, it, helps her sisters out. I think Colin, he's athletic. You know he is because he goes for a round of fencing with Benedict. So you know he appreciates sport. Again, Rich has a great, uh, a great. Uh, he obviously has the best broom. Lots of practice flying in this hypothetical world. I think Colin is in here. I think he's not Benedict. Benedict's a bit of a nerd. Like I don't think Benedict is, is is best skilled in the athletics, but I think Colin might be. So I'm putting Colin in as a chaser. And for my third chaser, three chasers, two beaters. We got Will and Anthony as a beater. Lady Featherington as the keeper. 
Prince Friedrich Collin, and then finally, if you think I'm making a Quidditch team and not putting the star of the show, Simon Bassett, the sexy Duke, on my team, you are wrong. Most of you might be surprised to find out I'm not putting him at Seeker. He is a chaser. He is a chaser. We know how athletic and agile he is. His kind of pastime sport is boxing, right? Dodging punches, dodging quaffle, or dodging bludgers. Sorry, same thing. Kind of like dodgeball. If you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a dodgeball. That movie's so fucking good, right? So Simon is the perfect chaser. Tall, lean, athletic. Again, rich is important because you have all the best equipment. In the Harry Potter universe, you won't believe this. The, the equipment's not sanctioned. The rich people have the best equipment, right? So within the same school, people are working with wildly different levels of gear. And so I think, you know Simon has a firebolt, right? You know Prince Friedrich and Colin have firebolts. You know they're working with the best equipment here. I think Simon needs to be on the team. He's the star of the show. I think, you know what? I think just the other team might stare at him. To be honest, if you come up against the right team, I think they just might get distracted and look at him and then fall off their broomstick. Easy points scored. And I think Simon fits that role really well. And finally, the glamour position. The most important position in Quidditch. More important than a quarterback is in football. We need a seeker. Who is going to fly around and get the snitch? It is the hardest job. It is the most important job. Who is going to do it? Who do we know in this show that is just determined to no end, right? Who is ruthless, but knows what she needs to do. Who's cunning, who's smart, who's intelligent, who is going to play within the rules of Quidditch, but push them as much as she can. Who is going to keep focus, who is going to stay focused and not get mired in the fray of the game going on, of the people in the chance screaming, or the people in the, the stands screaming? Who is going to be able to put all that aside and just focus on the job with, with cunning, with intellect, with, with speed, with a viciousness? Lady fucking Danbury, the seeker of the Bridgerton Quidditch team. She goes on this speech in the show. She sharpened her wit. She sharpened her mind. She sharpened her intellect. I don't even know what that speech was. She is a badass woman, and she is playing the badass position. Now, I get it. She walks around with the cane a little bit, maybe a little bit weak in the knees. Fuck, it don't matter. You're on a broom. You are on a broom. She can fly. You know she can fly like an absolute hero, like an absolute legend. The most important part about being the Seeker is it's the glamour position. Everybody is jealous of the Seeker because the Seeker gets all the credit for any victories that happen in Quidditch. Much like the quarterback in football usually gets all the credit or all the MVP awards. You need Lady Danbury in that position because nobody's going to fuck with Lady Danbury. She is the meanest, baddest bitch on this team. Like She is going hard in the paint. She is ride or die for the Bridgerton Quidditch team. And you know when she catches the snitch, no one's going to be jealous of her. Nobody's going to go, I could be a better seeker. No one's going to suggest a replacement. She is the opposite of a coach killer. She brings the team together. She flies with a determined swiftness. And I, I just, it's Lady Danbury is the seeker. She is the glamour position. If she can catch a snitch half as well as she can host a party for all the, the unhappy married women, then she's going to be absolutely perfect. 
Wow, I got really passionate about that there, but I hope you liked this episode of Let's Dive Deep Bridgerton. It's always fun to kind of revisit the season after you've watched it. I know that I did not get to every question I have about the show or every question you have. I wanted to keep this episode shorter than normal, so it's a bit of an easier listen. Like I said, I'm going to emphasize one more time, we can do more of these, as many as you guys like. Keep asking your questions to letsdivedeeppod at gmail.com. You can tweet me at letsdivedeep. That's also where you'll find links to Let's Dive Deep Hamilton, which you can search in your favorite podcatcher of choice. That is coming out every single Friday with a couple Mondays kind of thrown in to spice things up. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to leave me those five-star reviews so this podcast gets out to more people. Thank you so much for tuning in. I can't wait for season two of Bridgerton. I can't wait to record more of these question and answer videos. But just thank you so much for watching, and we will see you in the next one.